suffering and evil brought to an end. But if the people who perpetrate suffering and evil were brought to an end today, who would be left? G'day everyone, welcome to Bible Shots, Lachlan Orr here. Uh, and here at Bible Shots, we are taking some time out of our day to consider what the Bible has to say uh, in a format that, like an espresso shot, we hope leaves us feeling energized and ready to focus as we head into the afternoon. Now, not everyone who tunes into Bible Shots is a follower of Jesus. You may have never opened a Bible before, and that's okay. As long as you are happy to consider what the Bible has to say, we're glad to have you joining us. And you've joined us in the middle of a series called Jesus Versus Suffering, where we're considering one of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible and how Jesus responds to the problem of suffering and evil. And Rob Martin, who works with City Bible Forum in our Melbourne office, is today's speaker. Rob, welcome back to Bible Shots for another week. Thanks for having me, Lachlan. It's great to be back. Excellent. Now, uh, today we are talking about agents of evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering, when have you felt like you've confronted a truly evil person before? Well, there's been a few different points in my life where I have confronted uh, people who I, I would consider to be really, really evil people or bad people. Some of them have perhaps surprised me. Some of the people that I, uh, I think once I got to know them, I realized just actually how truly awful they were. Um, yeah, but th there's, there's a few times in my life when I've realized, yes, there are really, really awful people out there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and they really do cause a lot of pain and suffering. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Rob. We're looking forward to hearing a bit more about uh, your thoughts on Jesus versus agents of evil as we look at the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, if you've never joined us before, we have a pretty simple format. We look at part of the Bible. We'll hear our speaker today, Rob, who you just met, speak on that part of the Bible. And we'll have time afterwards to engage via Q&A. So if you've got questions, perhaps even as we go through the talk, you might like to use the Q&A function at the bottom of the Zoom bar there. Uh, to send your questions to me to be able to ask to Rob in Q&A time. Or if you're joining us via the Facebook live stream, you might like to type your questions in the comments and one of our, uh, our colleagues, Janelle, uh, will send them to me so I can ask them to Rob as well. Uh, the part of the Bible that we're looking at today is from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, if you want to look it up yourself, uh, please feel free to do that. But I'm also going to share it uh, on the screen. Uh, so we're looking at part of Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 24 to 30, and then verse 34 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weed also appeared. And the oven's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using parables. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. 
the field is the world and the good seeds stand for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Thanks, Rob. Thanks very much, Lachlan, and good afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I'm going to start off today with a very quick trivia question. Uh, you can submit your answer perhaps in the Q&A function or whatever. Lachlan will give a bit of a shout out to the winner or whoever can get this question right first, but just get yourself ready. I've got a quick trivia question. It's one multiple choice question that I'm going to ask, and I want to get you thinking about agents of evil. So which of the following was not a James Bond villain? Okay, was it A, Mr. Big, B, Dr. Evil, C, Dr. Julius No, or D, Mr. White? Now, one of those was not a James Bond uh, villain. Submit your questions or your comments or answer, perhaps in the, the chat function or the, um, the Q&A function there, just to let us know who you think it was. Because uh, one of those was actually, uh, in a, actually a, a, uh, a, vil a supervillain from Austin Powers, not from James Bond. But in all these movies, in these James Bond and Austin Powers, these evil villains are agents of evil. These are people who bring pain and suffering and threaten to take over the world. Uh, and I'll let, and these are, so these are agents of evil in our world. An agent is not a secret agent, James Bond style, but there are people or people or beings who plot to make decisions uh, in our world and agents who are free, that their actions bring pain to, and suffering and disaster. Okay, so I'm not sure if we've got any many answers there, but the answer actually was I'll just let you know now, uh, or maybe I'll wait for the end to see what, who, who, to who you think it is, um, who that agent was. But one of them is from Boston Powers, the rest from James Bond. We'll get the answer at the end. So the question today is different to the question of natural evil, suffering which is caused without an obvious agent, you know, things like leprosy, sickness, cancer, tsunamis. We looked at that last week. Today, we're thinking about suffering which is being caused by identifiable agents, people and beings who bring suffering to the world. So we've talked about some of the supervillains from James Bond and one from Austin Powers. But who are these agents of evil in our world? Well, rather than uh, spend time philosophizing, we're going to hear what God has revealed to us in the Gospel of Matthew as we explore Jesus versus agents of evil. Now, atheist Steven Weinberg said, good people do good things, bad people do bad things, but for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. Now, there's many problems with Weinberg's proposal, uh, but, but what, note what he's done, though, is he's divided the world into two groups, good people and bad people. It seems that something which is common in the world at present to divide the world into good and bad people. I often hear amongst skeptics and atheists, etc., that the problems of the world are caused by bad people or religion. But now, there's a lot to unpack with Weinberg's quote there, but notice it's his identification of bad people that I want to focus on. So are there really just bad people and then good people like the rest of us? Because then how do you determine the good people and the bad people, what constitutes a good person or a bad person? Many in the world think like this, that there are bad people out there, but it's generally not me. But Jesus isn't convinced. In fact, Jesus identifies a significant agent of evil. Uh, it's in another part of the Bible, I mean, another part of Matthew, Matthew 15, 19. If you have a Bible there, you can quickly look it up. But 
uh, Matthew 15, 19, where Jesus describes what defiles a person, what makes them unclean. Now, he says it's not external religious observance, like eating without ceremonially washed hands. It's actually things from inside, internal things which spring from the human heart. So he says there in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So it's these things which defiles a person, makes them unclean, unfit to be in the presence of God. So it's actually impurity within. Notice that Jesus himself doesn't divide people into good people and bad people. It's actually universal. Jesus was under no illusion as to the depravity of the human heart. Because at this point, it's uncomfortable. Because when we examine the problem of evil, it actually uncovers something about us. Because we can be selfish and bring suffering. Humans, all people, are agents of evil in the world. Now, uh, the children of a woman in our uh, suburb in Melbourne, where I live, were at a loss once to account for why their bicycles were stolen from their front yard. The problem was because their mother had told them that people are good. The late, great Christopher Hitchens was once asked the question, is man intrinsically good or bad? And he responded emphatically, man is unquestionably evil. Now, I'm not saying that people are incapable of good things or a virtuous living, but given the right opportunity, the right circumstances, people will reveal their true nature. And it's not a pretty sight. The verdict of Auschwitz survivor Elsie Baker is chilling. When after reflecting on her experiences in that Nazi concentration camp, she claimed that the level of human depravity is unfathomable. It's uncomfortable. But isn't this a true experience of the world? In fact, this is one of the reasons that I believe the Bible to be true, because the Bible shows humans for what we really are and what we really are capable of. Sinful, broken, agents of evil. So in some ways, the problem of evil is actually a problem of us. Now, we could ask then, why did God create me like this? Why did he allow us to succumb to corruption and evil? Well, perhaps it's part of the freedom that God has given us as moral agents. We're free to do good, but also permitted to do unspeakable acts of wickedness. But whatever, for whatever reason God is for choosing for allowing human evil, humans are free to reject him and to choose evil and hence become agents of evil. Now, the concept of uh, human agents of suffering and evil is also found in Matthew 13, the, the, the parable that Lachlan just read to us, and the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Now, this parable is an agricultural story that Jesus tells in the context of him speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And this parable shows us two agents of evil in the world. So just to unpack the parable a bit, the parable is a man sows some seed and then some enemies come and sow weeds. Now, both sprout and the servants ask if they should uh, weed the garden. But the man says no, because he might pull up good wheat. So the instructions are to let them grow together until the harvest when the wheat is harvested and the weeds are burned. Now, in some ways, this parable actually explains my garden. I'm very reluctant to put up any, pull up anything just in case I accidentally pull up a good plant. In fact, I did once replant a weed because I thought it was a blueberry plant. So in my garden, weeds grow alongside good plants because there's a danger of pulling up the wrong thing. But what does this parable mean? Well, Jesus explains the parable in verses 36 to 43. The parable is a, a metaphor or an allegory where the figures in the parable correspond to, to figures and people, agents in the real world. So it says, the man sowing the seeds is Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed and the wheat are believers in Jesus. The weeds are non-believers and the enemy is a devil. Uh, and the harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. 
So in the parable, Jesus is describing the way the kingdom of heaven relates to the world today. And even though the kingdom of heaven has arrived, evil is still present and active. Yet despite evil in the world, there's also a desire to end evil. Consider the reaction of the servants to the emergence of weeds in the field. They recognize that evil is there, evil's coming. The servants see evil weeds and ask the owner in verse 28, so what should we do? Should we pull them up? What they're effectively asking is to end evil. If you look there in verse 31, the effect of weeding will be to remove anything that causes sin and all who do evil. So the servants, by asking this question, are asking to pull up, if, you know, to pull up weeds because that will end up meaning ending evil. So then why shouldn't the angels or the harvesters pull them up? Well, why aren't they to end evil at, at this particular point? Well, the answer from the parable is because it's not harvest time. If you look there in verse 29, it's because while weeds are pulled up, wheat may be uprooted also. There's a real danger of uprooting the wrong plants at the harvesting process at the wrong time. Now, most scholars believe that the weeds identified here is Lolium tamellantum, also known as darnel or poison darnel. Now, this darnel bears close resemblance to wheat until the ear appears. So when they're young, they're actually virtually indistinguishable from wheat. So when the shoots are young, it's hard to tell wheat from weeds, which means you might pull up the wrong plants. And the point is that presently, I think it can be hard at times to determine the difference between wheat and weeds. There's a very real sense in which all people, believers and non-believers, do evil. Even though believers are wheat, their actions at times are indistinguishable from the weeds. Which means that if the harvesters were to go out and weed out all the evil and all who cause sin, well, who'd get weeded out? Well, both. Wheat and weeds could be weeded out. And this creates a problem if we want to end suffering. But a few years back at a forum, I was, just, uh, I was uh, a speaker that I was, uh, was there asked the question, how many of you want to end pain and suffering? So you asked the audience, how many of you want to end pain and suffering? And all the hands went up. And then the speaker asked a follow-up question, how many of you have ever caused pain and suffering? And all the hands went up. So here's a problem. For ending pain and suffering now will mean ending us. We need to acknowledge, line that the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. We are all agents of evil in some sense. But just notice something about the end of this parable. For whilst when young, wheat and weeds are indistinguishable, given time, the difference actually becomes enormous. Over time and to the end, uh, at the end, at the final harvest, it'll be very clear that, not all, that, that all who sin and do evil are ultimately those who belong to the evil one, not those connected with Jesus. So if you see what the wheat becomes, look in verse 43, they become glorious and a blazing light. Those who are with Christ stand truly as the light of the world. Hence, this parable is not saying that there are good people and bad people. It's saying that there are people in Christ and those out of Christ. The righteous are those who are grown by the Father, transformed by the Son, to live as lights for His glory. And that difference will be seen in the end. But as we look at this passage, we see a second and more insidious agent of evil. So look at the question the servants ask in verse 27. They say, where did the weeds come from? Where did this evil come from? And the answer given is an enemy, another agent of evil. Because this parable describes the existence, presence, and influence of an evil one, one who is described as evil, the devil, 
in verse 39. This is an evil one far more dangerous than Dr. Evil or Dr. No or any James Bond villain. This evil one is an agent of evil, one who influences, infiltrates and impacts people in our world. Now, according to this parable, this evil is the result of an evil supernatural agent. The devil is directly behind this process. Alongside the power of God, another power, an illegitimate power, a supernatural power of evil is at work. And we notice that God allows this evil, but he hasn't directly caused it. And so the reality, presence and impact of the evil one must influence our response to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Because we can, can see that our world is impacted by this evil supernatural power. Now, and I'm not sure that we'd know that the world was influenced by this evil one without revelation, without God telling us. Indeed, if there was an evil or a, sorry, a devil or an evil agent, then Jesus would know, wouldn't he? And Jesus warns us to beware him. In fact, Jesus warns people to pray that we are delivered from the evil one in Matthew chapter 6. Now, the origin of this evil one is shrouded in mystery. It's utterly unknown. We don't know where he came from or why he's evil or how he came to be evil. There are many theories, such as that he was a fallen angel like Morgoth in Lord of the Rings or something like Darth Vader who fell from the good and entered the dark side. We just, just don't know. There's actually very little teaching on this topic. But what we do know is that there is a supernatural agent of evil, an agent who sows in the people around us. And this parable teaches us that as we interact with and engage people in our daily lives, these are people influenced and affected by this agent of evil. Our society tends to trivialize the presence of an evil one. But a number of years ago, I gave a talk and I spoke on the devil and his plans, encouraging people to put on the armor of God as described in Ephesians chapter six in the Bible. But then not too long later, I was actually plagued myself with a real feeling of darkness, despair and desperate doubts. I realized, I came to realize that it was some kind of a spiritual attack, which Ephesians 6 speaks about. And it speaks there about the word of God being the sword of the spirit. So I actually recommitted my, to my Bible reading, et cetera, and renewed my with, with renewed enthusiasm and determination. And almost magically, in, in many ways, immediately the doubts and the fears subsided. It was a real experience with the evil one in some sense. So when we want to account for suffering and pain in the world, we must consider the presence and reality of an evil one, the devil who impacts our lives and the world. But then a deeper and bigger question emerges. Why does, Satan, sorry, why does God allow Satan to live? Why did God create Satan in the first place? Why would a good God create an evil one or allow an evil one to fall or, or to exist at all? Well, these are really difficult questions. And in many ways, these questions hone in on the real nub of the problem of evil and suffering. Because the problem of evil is really specifically a problem of the origin of evil. If an all-powerful and all-loving God creates a universe, then what role could evil and pain and suffering have in that? Why did God let Satan sow weeds in the field? Well, the best way of answering this question is if God tells us. And the big problem is that God has never actually told us why the devil exists. The answer is a mystery. God must have a reason and an explanation, but we just don't know. And I think this is where Matthew 13, 35 is helpful. Jesus speaks in parables to reveal things that were hidden. It says, I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. 
So whilst some things have been revealed through Jesus' teaching and parables, perhaps not everything has been revealed. Jesus implies that there are things hidden and there may still be other things that remain hidden. In fact, earlier in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 11, Jesus speaks about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of these things have been made, made known to us and we have them before us today. We've been reading them today. But there may well be and, and probably are other secrets and ideas that remain secret. We just don't know about them because we haven't been told or may never be told. We'd never have known about the presence of the evil one if we'd not been told. Perhaps, so perhaps there are more deeper secrets like the origin and purpose of the evil one. So here we peer deep and hard into the problem of evil and we're left with a potentially frustrating answer. We just don't know. We do know that there is a devil, a powerful agent of evil, but why God created him, we don't know. We have hints, we have glimpses, but we just don't know for certain. Some things are hidden since the creation of the world will remain hidden. So as we consider here the agents of evil and the problem of evil, we're confronted with some uncomfortable and some unsatisfying answers. We are part of the problem, and yet the problem is also beyond our comprehension. So I do wonder if our attitude to the problem of evil is a bit like Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. Not sure if you've read The Hobbit, but it's a humble, simple hobbit who happens on an adventure. And then he finds himself caught up in a cosmic battle between good and evil. And as you read The Hobbit, Bilbo doesn't really know everything that's going on. It's a bit bewildering to him. And throughout the book, there are tantalizing references to things like the necromancer. And Gandalf the wizard goes away for a period of time to deal with things. There are hidden things happening behind the scenes in a story which we're not told about. And Bilbo is never made aware of. So if we only read The Hobbit, this is all we know, then we'd know little about why Middle Earth was the way it was. We'd know something, but only when we read the next story, The Lord of the Rings, that more is revealed and things are made clearer. Bilbo didn't know why things were the way they were because he hadn't been told. It's the same with us and evil. We just haven't been told. But that doesn't mean that we can't live in the world. We can have adventures like Bilbo and live full and flourishing lives. But the most important thing to remember is though that like the evil one in, is um, a fierce, insidious, and evil force, he has been defeated. Like Sauron, the Dark Lord, the Necromancer, and the Lord of the Rings, the evil one has been defeated. His power will fade, and there is hope that the righteous wheat will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Thanks very much for joining us today. And I can give you the answer to the question if you like, Lachlan. Yes, Rob, fire away with your question. We got, we got any, have you got any responses or many? many? No, no, we, we, did have a, we did have a few responses. There are a number. Okay, the uh, answer is actually, was it Mr. Big, Dr. Evil, Dr. Julius? No, Mr. White. The answer was B, Dr. Evil, who was actually the evil supervillain from Austin Powers. Yes, so congratulations to Mark Newton, who was the first person to get in with that answer. Good um, job, Mark. Well I done. would also like to say uh, props to John Brackenbury, who was the first person to answer with my initial thought of Mr. Big. Ah. Was, Isn't that the guy from Sex and the City? Um, no, Mr. Big from Live and Let, Lo Live and Let Die. That's the, so Dr. Julius No was from actually Dr. No, surprisingly. Uh, Mr. White, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Mr. Big, Live and Let Die. And Dr. Evil was from Austin Powers. So there you go. Something You learn something from the Bible and also something from the, the history, the genre of film in... Uh, um, the, the, the genre of agents of evil today as well.
it's a multifaceted learning experience. It is. It's been, it's been, it's been fascinating. Yeah. So we've got some questions, have we, Lachlan? We do. We do have some questions coming through. Uh, right before we get to those, uh, just a quick plug to say, if you'd like to join our mailing list, or if you have any comments or feedback, uh, the easiest way to get on the mailing list or to send that information uh, to me is to email uh, bibleshots at citybibleforum.org uh, and I will get that. So if you'd like to join the mailing list tech issues and like we almost did today, quite, uh, or uh, if you've got feedback or, uh, or other comments, please let me know. Bibleshots at citybibleforum.org. We do have some questions starting to come through. Um, uh, one was, um, just to, tailing on the end there, what reasons do you have for believing that the devil exists and isn't just a fiction to explain things we haven't understood in the past? Uh, you know, some mental health disorders, epilepsy, etc. cetera, um, that's better left behind now that we've progressed beyond that. I think that's a great question. It comes out, I did, I did allude to it in my talk and mentioned it briefly. Um, one of the main reasons I think that, that to believe the devil exists is because Jesus believed the devil to exist. I think that's the main, and, and as I was saying, if, in terms of revelation, in terms of how do we understand some of the secret things of the world, the deeper things, et cetera, you need someone to reveal it. I think Jesus is trustworthy in a bunch of other areas, but I think that actually the, uh, the fact that he talks about it and he explains it and treats the devil as real uh, and I, I think he's a sane, reasonable person. And I think there's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a reason to believe. And I suppose also, as I've mentioned, uh, I did also talk about personal experience. I've, I've had a number of periods in my life where I've felt that I've been under some sort of spiritual attack, et cetera. And it's, it's hard to explain and it's hard to kind of experience. And I realize personal experience may not convince other people. But to me, I'd say that those are two, um, two reasons. Um, that yep, You may dispute those reasons, but I still think they're certainly reasons. And that's certainly um, my personal experience. Thanks, Rob. Um, uh, one that's kind of related to that. Um, why? So why would there be, is a couple of questions combined, why would there be a created supernatural evil one? Uh, and why would God create one, uh, a being um, that's arguably as powerful as himself? Um, saying we don't know and it's a secret uh, certainly seems unsatisfying. Um, so yeah, are, are there answers or are there suggested answers? There's certainly suggested answers. There's no doubt about that. Um, but as I said, I think this is what I was talking about before. In the end, it becomes unsatisfying because we just don't know. We can guess. I mean, there's, and there's educated guesses. There's lots and lots of ink been spilled. Lots of books been written, blog posts been written, uh, podcasts done on the topic. But unless you get someone answering the question directly, like God himself, then I just think you're going it's, to, it's a little bit speculative. So um, I, there's, there's a few different ideas that have been offered um, and, there's a, and I can perhaps unpack some in another time, maybe with, with a bit more time, but basically I, I, it is unsatisfying because we do like to know these things. But as I said before, the secret things that have been revealed, maybe this is one of the secret things that just hasn't been revealed. We just don't know. We just don't know. And, and, it's, and it's, yeah, there's, there's good reasons to think through why that is the case. But as I said, we're just like Bilbo in The Hobbit. We don't know the deeper and the bigger things that are going on around him. Yeah. Sorry, I realize it's unsatisfying, but unfortunately, I think if you want a, a truly biblical answer to some of these big questions about the origin of evil, then like, what, why is the serpent in the garden in, the, in Genesis? We're never really told. It's just that, that he's there. He's crafty. He's, he was invented, made by God. But for what purpose? I, I, we just don't know. And, and that is frustrating and doesn't mean that we shouldn't investigate it or try to think about it. But until we've actually been told the, the true, the right answer, we're going we're, we're gonna to be the best of all possible guesses, perhaps, in some sense. If this being is out there, should people be afraid? Well, Jesus himself did say that, didn't he? Didn't he say, um, 
uh, in Matthew uh, that you should not necessarily be afraid. I mean, for, for people who are Christian believers, this is one of the, um, the joys and the privileges of being in, in a, as a Christian believer. It means that you do actually not fear the devil um, and fear his things, but it, there's certainly warnings. So Jesus himself warns to pray that we are delivered from the evil one. Um, and that's, that's the words on Jesus' lips himself. And there are others to talk about recognizing, uh, as I mentioned before, in Ephesians chapter six, which talks about spiritual warfare between the, the, the devil and his flaming darts and the believer that there's, there's a sense of being uh, warned, but I'm not sure, necessarily sure that the response should be fear, because I think that that actually fear is overcome by being connected to Jesus and his purposes uh, and hope. Um, so it's not necessarily afraid, but certainly being uh, aware of and war warned of. Yeah, it's like if you're in the kitchen, uh, you should be afraid of the, the oven, the fact that it's, you know, 180 degrees, 200 degrees, and it'll kind of kill you if you get inside. Well, probably not, because you realize that there's certain um, ways in which you can control that and deal with it if it's in the right place, et cetera. But it's just, it, yeah, I suppose it's not it's a similar sort of way, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful. So there is a, a, a genuine danger to this reality, but uh, God is still sovereign and in control. And so for people who trust him, uh, they don't need to uh, be afraid in, in that yeah. sense. Well, this is what came back last week. We talked about last week about the goodness of God. And I think it being connected to him um, by believing and following him, etc., that that does give reason to not fear. Thanks, Rob. Um, I think we've got time for one more. Um, if we, and this is, I think, massaging a couple of uh, questions, comments that I, I got together. Uh, yep. We all have weed or, and wheat within us. Uh, how much freedom do we have to make the good or right choice? Uh, and how do you know which you are? Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good question. Although I would actually dispute, if you look at the passage itself, the passage is not saying that the wheat and the weeds are to, in, in, in the same person. Actually, I think that they're actually drawing a distinction between uh, believers and non-believers. And so the believers are wheat and always remain wheat, uh, sorry, and, and remain wheat, and the weeds are weeds and remain wheat. So I don't, I don't think that you should be confused, certainly as a Christian believer, that you, are, you have the wheat and the weeds kind of intertwined into you. The point is that the, at, at, at one particular point, the two may actually get intertwined and be caught up as, as like you're pulling up wheat. It's not saying that you're pulling up the weeds in your life, et cetera. So I think you've got to make that distinction very clear that the wheat and the weeds are two separate beings but in the end i think that the end of the passage is where it becomes clear that you in the end you become what you are so i've seen people at the end of their life who become just wonderful lovely people um that, that that's really what they uh, become but they're also people who get to their end of their life and are just nasty bitter and twisted because they really demonstrate what they what they are i think that's what parable really shows it's about growing up as well and what it means and you can certainly and the way, obviously, to, to, to bridge, the, to become different is the, is the connection to Jesus. You need to believe in him to become wheat. And so uh, someone who grows up a weed, um, I mean, the Apostle Paul himself uh, was one who uh, changed sides, so to speak, and left the, became uh, part of the wheat, so to speak. But I just want to, want to say that they are distinct. They are different. But uh, in the end... The, the difference will become very, very clear. You become what you are. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the age. That's where that becomes, they can harvest because you can sell, t tell the difference. It becomes very manifest, the difference between the two. I hope, does, that, does that help? Is that, do you want to come back on that? Or is that does that help clarify that question? Uh, no, no, I think it does uh, help clarify it a bit. I think uh, part, maybe part of the confusion is because you also talked about uh, the line between good and evil running. Ah, uh, yes. Now that's, that's probably true. Yes. Now that's perhaps, that's perhaps, yes, I, I can appreciate that's, that's confusion. I'm not trying to suggest that the, uh, 
yeah, it's, it's how you group the categories together. I'm still sad that the wheat and the weeds are distinct. I suppose there's a sense of it, even as wheat, yes, we become, the, the, the people who are believers do become uh, like shining, shining lights, but that doesn't mean that they're still not um, uh, evil and wickedness within the individual. Um, but in time, that actually is transformed and certainly by the spirit of God is, is sort of meant that you become... Uh, the you're transformed into something different um yeah that's 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 a good point so thank you for highlighting that that was that was perhaps a confusion of of categories which may have led to degree some degree of confusion but yeah thank you that thank, thanks Clarif Rob. thank you for the clarification that's that's helpful no, no that's okay I, I i'm i'm making assumptions uh <laughs> but we uh there are a couple other questions that have come through but we will finish up there because we are a little bit over time sure uh, we could perhaps answer them on the facebook feed or something we might be able to put the yeah. up there and we can respond on there and continue the conversation on online perhaps if that would be helpful for people yeah, uh, I think we can definitely do that. Um, and uh, next week, though, we're going to see Jesus versus expectations. Mm -hmm. um, are expectations really that bad? Like, why are we looking at expectations in a series on suffering and evil? Well, I suppose it's particularly considering the expectations that uh, the ancient people had about who, who God would be and what he would come to do. So our expectations of suffering, and implicit in the problem of evil is the expectation that a good God will eliminate suffering. And so the question then comes, well, how does that come to bear when we come to the person of Jesus, et cetera. And particularly in his original Jewish context, the expectations that the people had for him uh, was what was the, what was the, the understanding of the Jewish King to do and what was that going to look at? So we're going to look at the, what the, the ancient people thought about the great and anointed and powerful one. Um, so they're looking at their expectations and then how perhaps Jesus didn't quite meet them. Okay. Fantastic. Well, you may not meet our expectations as well. And or as, as we get into philosophical categories as well, that, that's why we have to come and tune in next week to find out. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Well, we look forward to having you join us again uh, next week for our second last uh, Bible shot of the series. Uh, and we'll look forward to having you all join us as well. And we'll look forward to seeing you then. Until then, take care. We'll see you next time.